want to welcome everyone again. We have a wonderful privilege this morning to have one of the men that have helped shape me over many, many years. Um, this is Dr. Dave Goff. We call him Coach Goff. He was one of my uh, coaches in baseball. I have a couple of my college buddies. Give them an easy time uh, here this morning. Uh, Coach Goff was um, a professor for over 25 years. He uh, shepherded a church for almost 20 years. A published author of a book uh, that I never ever read. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> That's all right. Contributing author to Gospel Coalition. Now that I think of it, I don't know if I've really ever read many of the books that you've assigned to me over the years. Not surprising. Uh, let, let, let me tell you, uh, Coach uh, loves the Lord. He loves his, his family, and he loves the Word of God, and we are uh, blessed and privileged to hear from a man who, who taught me how to teach over the years. Amen. So, Coach, welcome. We love you, and may the Lord bless. Thank you, Tim. God bless you. So, good morning, Big Woods Bible Church. I bring you greetings from Grace Bible Church in Lorton, Virginia. That is my home church. I also bring you greetings from Community Bible Church in Manassas, Virginia, where I've been serving for the last 18 months. Just ask you to be praying for both of those churches. They're going through a number of circumstances right now. The last church has just uh, called a new pastor who is coming all the way from California. My understanding is, as a result of the email I received this morning, he drove all week from Riverside, California, with nine kids, sickness along the way, broken down vehicles, and they got into town after midnight last night. He will be beginning his ministry right away, so please pray for him, Pastor John Richard of Community Bible Church in Manassas. It is such a joy to be with you, and Tim, I, I am so grateful for this opportunity, and uh, I would like to say you haven't changed a bit but at least Wendy hasn't changed a bit. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to please take it and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is where we'll be this morning. For most of us, this is a familiar passage of Scripture. I want to look at it from perhaps a perspective that you may not have seen, at least all that clearly, or at least as the principal meaning of the text. But I want to have a word of prayer with you. Before I begin, and then we're going to read this text together, and we'll see what the Lord has to say to us through it. So let's pray. Lord, what a privilege, what a privilege it is to open your word this morning, and uh, thank you that it is a living word. It is quick, and it is powerful. It is able to change hearts and lives. And so, as we come this morning, we recognize that we are not a perfect people. We, we stand in need of your grace and of your mercy. And so, we ask that you would help us through the reading, through the teaching of your word, and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, who applies these words to our hearts, to make us what you want us to be. We come in the name of Jesus, we expect to meet with you, and we expect, Lord, that you will speak to our hearts at our point of need. So just deal with us now according to your holy will, in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. 
Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Interesting story. William Sidney Porter, better known by the pen name O. Henry, was a master of short stories at the turn of the 20th century. You may have been familiar with some of those. His, his best-known work was probably The Gift of the Magi. It's about a poor young couple named Jim and Della who at Christmas time didn't have very much money, but they were looking for Christmas gifts for one another. Now, you and I may not consider ourselves to be rich this morning, but each of us has a prized possession, something that we hold dear in our lives. For Della, it was her long, beautiful, flowing hair which when she let it down, fell like a shawl over her shoulders. For Jim, it was a pocket watch, probably one that had been passed down to his family over many years. They were their prized possessions. It was a day before Christmas, and Della only had $2 in hand, and she was desperate to find a, a gift for her husband. And so the only thing she could think of was her hair. She would go down to the hairdresser. She would have her hair cut short and then sell the hair so that she would have some money to buy a gift for her husband. And so she did that, much, in, much trepidation in having it done, but she went to the hairdresser, had, had her hair cut and sold it, got enough money to get together to buy her husband a chain a platinum chain for his prized pocket watch. Well, Jim, on the other hand, needed to get a gift for Della. And what he had was his pocket watch, the only prized possession that he had that was worth anything. So he went to the jeweler, and he sold his pocket watch so that he might buy some jeweled combs and brushes for his wife's lovely hair. You can see what's happening. Both had given up their prized possession in order to satisfy and make happy the need of the other. 
So, so that evening, Della covered her hair with a, with a cloth, with, a, with, with a, 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 if you will, a covering of some sort because she was afraid of what Jim would think of her when he walked in the house and saw her with her short hair because he loved her hair. He loved it especially when she let it down. So Jim walked in the door and he presented to her her gift and she said, no, but you must open my gift first. And so she gave him his, his wrapped gift and, and he opened it and he saw the, the platinum chain for his pocket watch. He was deeply moved. And then he said, you open your gift. She opened her gift and she found the brushes and the combs for her hair. Both had surrendered their most prized possession and you and I may say, for what? For what was it surrendered? Because it seemed at least immediately to be of no value or no use to either one. But you know, when I read that story, I, I think about the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus paid on Calvary. God gave his very best, his prized possession. And the world is looking at that sacrifice and saying, for what? Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a great teacher. Jesus had much to offer to the world. And yet he gave his life for what? For what? He did it for people like you and for me. And the world is asking for what? But for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we know the reason that he gave his life. So I think we can look at this story and, and, and we, can, we can get at least one initial lesson out of this story, and that is that the sincerity of our love for God can be gauged by what we're willing to sacrifice for him. We so often think of what God has given to us, and we should not minimize that. That should be on our minds and in our hearts every single day of the year. But what about our offering to God? What prized possession are we willing to give up for our Lord? The Lord Jesus, in the greatest of all commandments, said this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And I, I just want to emphasize that little word, all. We often read that command, and we sort of minimize what the word all means. All means all. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the implication is this. We are to hold back nothing from the Lord in terms of our worship for Him and Again, you're, you're, you're aware that the world is looking at us today and, and even saying, well, why, why are those people gathering together on Sunday morning? I mean, there's a lot more important and, and, and interesting things we can be doing on Sunday morning other than going to church. Most people say, well, why go every week? Why not just go Christmas? Why not just go Easter? You can get caught up with God. Or why bother at all? Why, why do we do what we do? And those kinds of sentiments are, are either expressed or, or verbalized towards committed Christians all the time. And probably you've heard some of those thrown your way. Well, in the passage that we read just a few moments ago, Jesus has a word for us about worship. 
It's a familiar story. We've heard it over and over. In fact, all four of the Gospels record a version of this story, or at least one similar to this story. And the unavoidable conclusion that we're left with is that worship that costs us nothing is worth nothing. So the 12th chapter of John's Gospel opens. Jesus is entering into the final week of his earthly life. We need to understand that this is Jesus' last week. He's entering into the city of Jerusalem. And and in the evenings, we're told that he goes around the Mount of Olives to a little village known as Bethany. It was at Bethany where friends lived. In fact, it was at Bethany where he raised from the dead one of his closest friends, Lazarus. Lazarus lives there with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. It was a place that Jesus probably frequented with his disciples on a number of occasions. It was a place of hospitality. It was a place that he could go whenever he went to Jerusalem. And it appears as we read this story that as Jesus is entering into this final week of his life, knowing that the cross awaits him at the end of his week, that a young lady from that family by the name of Mary becomes the central figure. Up to this time, we don't know anything about this Mary, but she's about to play a pivotal role in what Jesus is about to accomplish through his death. So what we see in verses 1 through 3 here is how Mary comes to Jesus and she has a a display, if you will, of extravagant worship. She's about to worship Jesus in ways that others thought she was crazy to be giving of herself in this way. So Bethany was this small village and here's Jesus and his disciples. They've gone to Bethany and it seems like the family wants to have this, uh, have this dinner party, if you will, for Jesus. And perhaps it was as a result of Lazarus being raised from the dead. I mean, this family, you can imagine calling back someone from the dead and, and Jesus is, becomes now the center of attention. They want to feed him. They, they want to feed him. They want to celebrate with him. They want to honor him and so can imagine if you can this this dinner party that's about to be had and there there are are really 14 men at this dinner party there's Jesus there's his 12 disciples and then there's Lazarus but then there's two women whose primary responsibility seems to have been domestic at the time they they were the ones who were to get the meal together to get the house in order And these two sisters were like night and day in terms of their personality and in terms of the things that interested them. We we find that Martha was like some of you ladies this morning. Whenever someone would be coming to your house, you know, you've got to clean the house top to bottom. You've got to prepare the meal. All the garnishings around the meal had to be just right. You know, company was coming. We have to get the house in order. Mary, on the other hand, had very little interest in domestic things, like some of the rest of you ladies. But Mary's Mary's interest was, was sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him teach. So look at verse 3. Sometime after the meal, we are told that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, you're no doubt aware that the word Christ is not Jesus' 
name. It's a title. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. Jesus was the one anointed by God to be the Messiah, to be the Redeemer, to be the Savior. And Mary seems to be recognizing that. And she seems to be preparing to anoint, if you will, the anointed one in a symbolic act of worship. So here's Jesus, the anointed one, about to receive this precious gift of worship through this young lady who's going to anoint him with this perfume. Now, we need to understand something about the significance of this act. When it talks about a pound of perfume, or nard as it is used here, probably the pound was a Roman pound, which would have been 12 ounces. The perfume is described as nard, which would have been a it's come, had come from India, the Himalayan mountains. This was sealed in a hermetic vase of some sort. And this was worth, we're told, 300 denarii, which would have been the equivalent of a year's wages for a rural worker. So this is an expensive ointment. We're told that The family has this. Where they got it, we don't know. Again, it may have been passed along. Maybe they bought it at some place. But it was their prized possession. I mean, this was was like a, a year's worth of money to them. It was their prized possession. Where they would have gotten it, we don't know. But what we're told is that Mary took this prized possession. She broke the flask. She poured the ointment on Jesus. Now, that seems really strange to us until we understand the symbolism behind this. She's anointing the anointed one, but she's taking her most prized possession to do this. And and not only the fact that she's anointing Jesus, she's anointing Jesus' feet. Not only that, but we're told she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. It was, considered, it was considered just a lack of total protocol for a woman to even loosen her hair in public in that day. But here Mary is letting her hair down. She is actually wiping Jesus' feet with the hair. She's willing to cast aside all, all, the, all the opinion that other people had. She's willing to put aside all protocol in order to worship Jesus, in order to give Jesus her very best. And here's another reminder that comes out of this story. It's to the degree that you and I are holding back to ourselves something that God wants us to surrender, that our degree of worship for him suffers. What is it that you and I are holding back that God says, I I want that, or I want you to give that up? And we're saying, no, Lord, that's mine. Think of this 12-ounce container of perfume, and we say, that's a lot of of perfume. Probably we we men who buy our wives perfume for for Christmas probably get that little two-ounce bottle or something. A 12-ounce bottle would have been a pretty good size, about the size of a Coke bottle. And what we need to realize is that this ointment was not purchased for you to wear behind your ear or to make you smell good. 
Yeah, you do that. I mean, I've watched some of you ladies put the perfume on. But the ointment was primarily for the purpose of anointing someone for burial. Mary got it. She got it. My Jesus is going to die. That's why he came. He came as the Messiah. He came as the Savior. He was going to give up his life. I'm preparing him. I'm preparing his body. She was willing to give up her very best for Jesus. It it was a, a, a display of extravagant worship. Something that most of us have no idea how to do. It wasn't looked upon favorably by the others who were there. And sometimes taking a bold stand for, for Jesus is going to cost us friendships, relationships. It's going to cost us perhaps money, comfort. Sometimes our families stand in opposition to our des- desire to follow Jesus wherever he leads. And I heard the prayer this morning, Jesus, take me, I'm yours. Take me, do whatever you want to do through me. Jesus looks at the heart. Do you really mean that? Are you willing to give it all to Jesus? So this was not looked at favorably by the others. And you can see, look at verses 4 through 8. We find the disciples beginning to grumble about this. And the chief complainant is none other than Judas, who is expressing disgust over this excessive waste What Mary saw as extravagant worship, Judas saw as excessive waste. Matthew, when he records in his version of this story, writes this. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. That means they were mad. They were upset. And they asked, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And then Mark, in his account, adds these words. And they scolded her. Can you imagine? Here's this woman pouring out her heart, giving her most prized possession to the Lord, and the disciples are sitting, the disciples who have lived with Jesus for three years, they're scolding her. Why are you doing that, Mary? Can you imagine what Mary meant as worshipful, the others saw as wasteful? And again, Judas seems to be the instigator of this and Shouldn't be surprised, right? We're we're told here he was the one who was about to betray Jesus. Look at verse 6. We're told that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Like so many others who profess to follow Jesus, Judas lived a double life. He, he, He was a deceiver. And deceivers often reveal their character slowly. We don't pick up on it right away. But inevitably, their true character is going to come out. And soon, Judas' true character will come out. The word that is used for thief in this passage, Judas was a thief, is the word from which we get our English word kleptomaniac. Judas couldn't help himself. He stole by compulsion. And he did it undercover. He was duplicitous. Didn't fool Jesus. He didn't let on. He didn't tell anybody else. 
what kind of person Judas was, he, but he wasn't fooled. He, he, he knew the insincerity of, of Judas' words. And so look how Jesus, Jesus responds to the entire group in verse 7. He says, leave her alone. Let her do what she's doing so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This is amazing. As I read this story, and as I've read it over and over again through the years, it's, it's suddenly dawned on me that you've got the 12 disciples of Jesus. You've even got Lazarus in the room, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And you've got Martha, who's running all over the house, fixing things up. Mary's the only person in this story who seems to know what's going on. Mary's the only one. This, you know, I'd love to meet Marys like this. Because these are the ones who know the heart of Jesus and are willing to give their very best for him. What, what Mary meant is devotion to Jesus. The others looked at her and thought, she's crazy. She's crazy. She's foolish by doing this. So Jesus' response, as Matthew records, it was both a commendation of Mary as well as a criticism of his closest companions. Here's what Jesus says, as recorded by Matthew. Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And then he adds these words. He says, in pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. The immediacy of Jesus' words were not comprehended by those who heard them, at least not immediately. And perhaps none of the men realized that events were being set in motion that would culminate with Jesus' death by the end of that week. Mary alone seemed to understand, and she seized the moment with a humble act of devotion and worship. Listen, Scripture repeatedly reminds us that today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today is the Lord's calling to your heart. If you're without Jesus Christ this morning, and you're under the hearing of these words, not my words necessarily, but the words of God, then God is speaking to your heart. He's making an offer to you. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. But today is the day I'm making this appeal. He may not make that appeal to you tomorrow. So the lesson holds true for all of us. This is the time to draw near to God. I, I told Tim before we came out here, what, what a beautiful opening to the service. How worshipful, how our hearts were prepared to receive the word of God this morning. But were you singing from the heart? Was your heart focused on the cross of Jesus Christ, the, the open tomb, what he has accomplished for you. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not Christmas, not Easter. Today is the day the Lord is saying to you, give me your all. Surrender to me yourself and I will make something beautiful of you. So let me speak to all of us. Let, let me include myself in this. What is it that we've been putting off surrendering to Jesus Christ? What is it that he has been speaking to our hearts about and says, just give me that? 
I may give it back to you, or I may make it better, or I may twist it and turn it and make it into something you haven't even imagined. But what is it that you are holding back from giving to Jesus Christ? We may be thinking, well, there's a better time to do this. There's no better time because the Bible says today is the day. We who, we who love the Lord so often turn a deaf ear to what he is saying. What is it that we're holding back? And I'm, I get to a point in my life where I, I look and I say, I, I wish I had done that sooner. Jesus says, don't look back with regret. You've got today. Today is the day. Don't look ahead to tomorrow. There is no guarantee to tomorrow. Today is the day. And to the degree that we are willing to hold back to ourselves, to that degree our worship of the Lord suffers. And I will tell you this, my friends. You may not think it's a big deal right now. But one day when we stand in the presence of the Lord and we stand recognizing that we are nothing but sinners saved by grace and that he is the altogether holy one, we will understand that we should have given when God said give. Leave her alone, Jesus said with regard to Mary. She's done a beautiful thing. She's done a beautiful thing for me. Mary gets it. Mary gets it. She gave her all to the one that Judas was willing to say to the chief priests, I'll hand him over for the price of a slave. Think about that. What a contrast. What a comparison. And it's going to take a while before the other 11 disciples are able to fully grasp what's going on as a result of Mary's after-dinner gesture, just like it, it takes time for you and I to process what the Lord is doing in our lives. But until we recognize that God calls us not only to give our all, but he deserves us to give our all, until we recognize that, we won't understand the story either. And that's the challenge. Because Scripture says, where your treasure is, there's your heart also. So here in commending Mary, Jesus has drawn this very stark, strict line of demarcation between extravagant worship and excessive waste. And wherever Jesus went, he created controversy. He, he, he drew this line in the sand. Are you for me or are you against me? And people today remain divided over Jesus. And that debate is going to continue until Jesus returns and reveals himself to be the one who is truly deserving of all of our worship. But I'm not quite finished. There's one more point. Verses 9 and 11. For 2,000 years, man has found himself in this dispute over exceptional worth. What, what really is worth something? What is, what is valuable to you? What is valuable? And we find an early illustration of this in verses 9 through 11. The point is this, if how you choose to align yourself with regard to Jesus Christ is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. The crowd of Jerusalem has been gathering for several days in preparation for the Passover. Hearing that Jesus was in Bethany, a number of them actually make their way around the Mount of Olives, perhaps over the Mount of Olives, to the little village of Bethany, because they heard Jesus was going to be there. Not only did they want to see Jesus, but they, they had heard this about this talk of the town about Lazarus being raised from the dead. They wanted to see Lazarus too. 
And so they were flocking, if you will, to Bethany to see this Jesus and the one he had raised from the dead. You look in verse 9, you see this, this group that is mentioned called Jews. Who are these Jews? These Jews are probably, at this point, the curiosity seekers. They're the ones that want to go and see, let me see this miracle worker. Let me see this one who has been raised from the dead. They, they're more right at this point just kind of curious, seeking what they're about to find. But if you look down in verse 11, we find these same Jews were told that many of them were now believing in Jesus. So their hearts were being changed. Their hearts were being conformed, if you will, to the image of Christ. And that is the whole point of John's gospel, by the way. When you open up the gospel of John, chapter 1, read all the way down through chapter 21, you realize that what John is trying to do is to tell us why Jesus is worthy of our belief. Why should we believe in Jesus? He's he's performed many miracles, and Lazarus now is the evidence of the greatest miracle that he has performed. Who ever heard of anybody raising the dead? But here was the evidence. Lazarus represented the evidence. No matter what Jesus did, you could not ignore him. Many now were believing in him. And unless Jesus is the one who is the object of our faith, the object of our devotion, he's really nothing to you. There is no other option. There is no middle ground in terms of who Jesus Christ. You're either for him or you're against him. Now here's the point of verses verses, uh, 9 through 11. If anyone should have known better, about who Jesus was, what Jesus had performed. It should have been the chief priests. These were like the pastors. These were like the religious teachers. They should have known the Old Testament prophecies. They should have been able to detect what God was up to in Jesus' miracle ministry. But unlike Mary, they were so consumed with their own power, with their own self-interest, with their own private interpretations of Scripture, that they were blinded to the fulfillment of what God was doing. Jesus only had a few days to live. He was calling people to believe in Him and to worship Him, and the chief priest took the opposite position. Not only did they not believe in Jesus, they violently opposed Him. This is amazing. They needed to get rid of Jesus because their power base was being threatened. That's amazing. And Lazarus represented the evidence. So if we're going to get rid of Jesus, we've got to get rid of Lazarus too. There are no depths to the depravity of the human heart. Rather than thinking through their theological positions, the chief priest chose to deny the evidence. And not only did they choose to deny it, but they choose to, chose to destroy it altogether. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. Ever since our first parents took the first bites of that forbidden fruit, sin nature rears its ugly head. Some of you are familiar with the old whack-a-mole game? You know, It seems like whenever God is is on the move and he's speaking to our lives, our sin nature takes that handle and, pam, quiets God. I don't want to hear that. 
We whack God out of our lives. John 3.19 says people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And when we are unaware of our hardened hearts, we can be caught in a trap, unable to free ourselves. And that's where many of us are. We're trapped in sin. We love sin. We can't hear the voice of God. And our hardened heart becomes so hard that it's impenetrable by truth. So impenetrable, get this, we're willing to kill God. You say, that's not me. Well, I'm convinced that within each one of us beats the heart of a chief priest. What makes us think we're any different than these chief priests? I mean, they knew the scriptures. They believed that they were serving God. But they were totally out of touch with God's plan. We're no different. We may look better to ourselves or to to one another, but remember, it's God who searches the heart. And the question is always not necessarily what you do, but why you do what you do. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And it's been that way ever since Genesis chapter 3. But you remember the promise in Genesis chapter 3? The promise was, God said, in spite of your sin, I'm going to send one, the seed of the woman, and he's going to bruise the head of the serpent. He will do away with evil. He will do away with sin. And if you read your Old Testament, that's the story that's being played out through Genesis, all the way through Malachi, into the New Testament. And it culminates at the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, where He gave His life. He nailed our sins to His own body on the cross. And He says, Who will, whosoever will turn from their sin and trust in Me will be saved will be delivered from the evil of this world. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that summarizes the whole story of the Bible. Good trivia question. What's the story of the Bible? Jesus came to do away with evil and to make for himself a people who are called by his name. Can you imagine... Throughout his ministry, Jesus withstood the relentless daily assaults of the devil in his life. And the amazing thing is the scriptures tell us he never sinned. Jesus never said a sinful word, never had a sinful thought, never did a sinful deed. Why did he do that? He did that to fulfill the plan of God so that he could be the righteous redeemer for people like you and me. And in light of this progressing and progressive unfolding of God's story, there came a day when Jesus asked the Jewish religious leaders, what do you think about Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Who is he to you? You know, it's the same question that God poses to us today, is it not? Who is Jesus to you? To put it another way, what is Jesus worth to you? Is he worth your most prized possession. Let's let's bring it down, make it practical on this Sunday morning. Why are you here? 
Why are you here this morning? Are you here truly to hear from God, to render praise and worship to His name? Or is it simply, it's Sunday. It's time to get up and go to church. Who Jesus is to you will be revealed in how you worship Him. It's it's as simple as that. It's as simple as that. So I ask you again, what is Jesus worth to you? Because when you at last see your sin, the darkness of your sin, as the backdrop to the holiness of God, putting God's holiness on top of that backdrop of our sin, then you realize how desperate we are for a Savior. Our sin is terrible. God is holy. He's absolutely righteous. He's absolutely just. And if that is true, and it is, there is no cost too great to give to God for the sake of His holy name. It was David, a man after God's own heart, who one day said, I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord that cost me nothing. Our worship shouldn't be picked up at a yard sale. Shouldn't be bought at the church bazaar. It should be from the depths of our heart, from the depths of our being, because worship that costs us nothing is worth nothing. And, and to the degree that we're unwilling to sacrifice for the Lord, to that degree, our worship of Him suffers. And not only that, but the honor that he is due suffers as well. Jesus said these words, the hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's not Christmas, but Envision in your mind, if you will, the, the Magi who came to Jesus when he was still a young infant. And what were they looking for? They were looking for the one to whom they should worship. And let me just say this, that wise men and women are still looking for Jesus today. At least they're looking for someone to worship. And if we're not worshiping Jesus, we're worshiping something else. The good news is that even before we look for Jesus, he's been looking for us. Jesus is looking for us. He is is searching. He is seeking for us. And when he finds us, he he cleanses us of our sin. He, He makes us his own. Jesus came to, to, to claim a people for God. And he had to do that through his death and resurrection. God sent and sacrificed his very best for you and for me. Does not he deserve our best in return? Let's pray together.
Lord, as we sit before you now, having heard from your word, what I pray right now is that your Holy Spirit would work in each individual heart, placing a grid upon what they have just heard. If I've said anything amiss, if I've said anything incorrectly, if I have said anything that is not clear, I pray that you would cause that even now to be forgotten. May only that which is true to your word remain. And so, Lord, we we wait upon you now. We know that sometimes when seed is sown, it will spring up quickly. Sometimes it takes a while. But, Lord, I pray that the seed that has been sown this morning, through through the worshipful singing that we have heard, through through the prayers that we have prayed, through the preaching of your word, I just pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to bring forth a crop of righteousness for your eternal glory. Lord, we we recognize that you are worthy of all that we can give, and, and certainly of our very best. And so my prayer is this morning that you would search our hearts, and that you would help us to see that only those things that are lasting and eternal are worth investing our lives in now. I thank you for these dear men and women who have been so encouraging. And I thank you for the pastor of this church, Lord, who has given me this, this pulpit this morning. And we know that pastors don't s- surrender their pulpit easily. And so this is a privilege. This is a great privilege to be able to preach this morning. I pray that you would not my, let my words fall upon deaf ears or, or in vain. And even more, I pray that your word would last and remain. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And we wait upon what you're going to do in the name of Jesus and for his sake. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen.